Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. 2023. It's going to be a good year, people. Cash is writing his own Bible. You guys all just trusted him to tell you the truth. Man, look at this. Killing it already. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for being here this morning. I hope that 2023 is treating you well so far. Uh, For me, not great. Not great. I'm not about it, honestly. Eight days in, I'm over it. 2023 is bunk. Most of that is because uh, I, I don't know if anybody else had this problem. It was tough to get back to work this week, right? Now, I know I work for you people, so I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but uh, it was tough. It was rough to get back into it. You know, we had a lot of, like, fun time, Christmas on the front end, the weird way the calendar worked out. Now on the back end, it feels like we're just thrown in the deep end. I wrote this sermon twice this week. Uh, One time was a full sermon, eight pages. It was a killer, absolutely savage. Presented at a sermon meeting, they said, this is terrible. So then uh, back to the drawing board, and here we are today. Um, I've been doing a lot of thinking, actually, uh, about that. And I think, in some ways, I had a decent sermon, uh, but it wasn't a good sermon. I think... uh, It might have honored the text, it might have highlighted the power and beauty of Jesus, it might have uh, inched towards freeing us to be the believers that we want to be in following Jesus, but it just didn't quite make the mark. And I started asking myself the question, why am I sort of straying away from what this text is actually saying, or for what I believe God wants to say to us through this text? And I think... All of uh, what I came up with was actually like a long and complex way to avoid something that was difficult for me myself, which is that this part, this text, might be actually hard to believe. And essentially today we have a text that is about belief. It's a story of belief. If you cut through the presentation of the story, which is kind of a frame story if you're in ninth grade English, right? They're the only people that care about it, right? Did I get that right? A frame story, right? So sort of like Frankenstein, you know, classic frame story where you have like, here's a story, here's another story tucked inside of it, and then we go back to the original story, right? Matthew's a really great storyteller. But if you cut through all of that, it's essentially a woman who believed in Jesus and was healed, and a man who believed in Jesus so that his daughter was healed. The following story in Matthew is actually more tied to the one after it, so we didn't include it in this week's sermon uh, in our text breakdown, but it's similar in that we have some blind guys here where Jesus lays out this formula even more clearly in Matthew 9, 28 and 29. He says, when he entered the house, or Matthew says, when he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Heal them. And they said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and he said, according to your faith, be it done to you. Now, for me, it's not hard to believe that these stories happened, okay? So don't hear me wrong. Uh, At least for me, I don't really struggle with believing that this is a story that actually occurred. I've done enough research to say, in spite of my own belief in, like, the Holy Spirit and the way that there is a God orchestrating all of Scripture, like, even if I just, like, am able to put that to the side for just a moment, it's easy for me, given what I have seen and read and understood about the way that the Bible came together, I'm like, it would be harder... It would be more difficult for this to be like the biggest conspiracy of all time 
than it is to just believe that this was probably a real story. It's corroborated by enough evidence. Uh, it seems like the early church had a good system of sussing out what was probably true and what was not true. They had a high uh, sort of barrier of entry for what would be uh, considered worthwhile evidence. Now, there are other parts of the Bible that I have problems with, I have struggles with. I'm not just saying that I'm, I'm you know, somehow able to just believe and take it all at face value, but I'm saying that to me, it makes sense. It seems most consistent. It seems like the wisest choice here to take this story at least to some degree in face value. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, it's not all that hard for me to believe. If you told me that I was this little girl in this story's like great times 30 grandson or something like that, and that I wouldn't be here today were it not for the work of Jesus, like that's something that I can believe. I can wrap my mind around that. But you know what's difficult for me to believe in this story? It's these six little words that you see in verse 22. Jesus looks at the woman who had made her way through the crowd and he had healed her, and he says, your faith has made you well. And it's not difficult for me to believe that it's true for her, but it is difficult for me to believe that it's true for me. Like as a result of my faith or my belief, is Jesus willing, able, or inclined to do something miraculous for me? The real catalyst for change, uh, and really that being sort of the central question that I was avoiding, the real catalyst for change that pushed me into confronting this question was, of course, the stupid Prince of Egypt, right? Uh, you guys are all familiar with this film, a classic, Val Kilmer, Ralph Fiennes, uh, truly just some magic. I think Sandra Bullock is in there somewhere. I mean, just stacked, right? Uh, Evie has become fixated on it. No one really knows why. It was on a flight uh, from Georgia to, I mean, from Denver to Georgia. She just watched it once, and now she's watched it 10,000 times. It's over. It's on, like, straight-up repeat in our house. This is the level that it's gotten. I walk through the house, and I hear Evie singing the songs from the movie. And not like, like, not the, like, hits or anything. She's singing the Hebrew songs. Like, I literally, I walked past her room the other day, and I just heard in this, like, very small, like, very high voice, like, Yeshiva, Yeshiva, Yeshiva. It's crazy, right? She's gotten all into it. So she decides to watch it yesterday. And I uh, popped in and, of course, got fully, you know, absorbed into the narrative as it was unfolding. And they have this song, the true banger of the entire uh, movie, I think. Uh, there can be miracles when you believe, right? I mean, you guys all knew. Their heads are nodding out here. People know, right? You knew it was coming. It'll get you. Man, I was just walking by. The uh, slaves were all freed. They're walking away from Pharaoh. They are rescued. And then all of a sudden, they start singing this song, and I started tearing up. And not just because Val Kilmer is both God and Moses is magical. I started tearing up because I realized in that moment uh, what was happening in that story, a story that is told basically over and over again throughout all of Scripture, is one where people believe in God, and as a result of their belief, he acts on their behalf. And I said to myself, like, how strange is it that I was trying to preach anything but that from this text? Like, I was trying to find something else to talk about because I didn't want to be confronted with that. And in that song, I didn't even write down the lyrics. I probably should have. I'm sure somebody here in this room can actually uh, sing it out. They talk about the way in which they would pray in silence for years and years and years, wondering if anyone was actually hearing them until finally God comes through and says, hey, because of your belief, I am going to rescue you and your people. 
And something about modern living, something about who I am, my cynicism, my skepticism, it just makes me reluctant to believe something like that. If there's one person to blame, it's probably Benny Hinn. Sorry, nobody knows who that is. That's an old man joke, actually. Uh, He was actually a televangelist, really like big deal back in the day, still alive, I think. Uh, And he was from uh, Israel originally. He migrated over to Canada. At some point, he accepted Jesus, and then he started this huge ministry where he'd walk around, he'd go around the country, and he'd fill up entire stadiums, and he'd walk up, and uh, people would walk up on stage, and he'd be like, do you believe that God can heal you? And they're like, yes, I do. And then he'd smack them on the head. Uh, Sometimes they'd fall over, whatever, and then in that instant, they were healed. This actually happened to Evander Holyfield. You can look this up. He had like a heart problem or something. He goes to one of these Benny things and he walks away and he's like never had a heart problem again I mean really 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 crazy stuff and it makes you so freaking suspicious right because you watch stuff like that and you're like man if that's the case like why do we even have doctors anymore you know like if this is an option like let's just get Benny in touring everywhere why doesn't he just go into hospitals right and he's like do you believe I can heal you you saw what I did with the last guy you think I can do it for you boom and then he's like healing everybody everywhere and it makes you so suspicious because you don't know what's going on there there's all kind of shystiness right he's got the private jets he's got the you know allegations of affairs I mean he has got the full like like televangelist toolkit going on, and this is the guy who is saying things like this, right? He is saying things like, your faith has made you well. If you believe, then God will heal you. And it's crazy that he can say stuff like that that makes me so suspicious when Jesus says stuff like this. Like, how crazy is that that I am allowing just some sort of like cultural phenomenon to keep me from believing stuff like this? What Jesus is saying here sounds more like Benny Hinn than it sounds like Tim Keller or Eugene Peterson. He is saying that if you believe enough, then Jesus will heal you. And here it is in this passage. Jesus is saying your faith has made you well. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do something very unmillennial of me. Uh, We're going to, instead of avoiding the thing that makes us uncomfortable, we're going to wade into these murky waters and just see what we come up with. I don't even know. It actually got darker as I was saying that. Did anyone else notice that? I don't know what happened in here, but uh, here we go. (laughs) Um, Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go into God's word. We're going to ask God these two questions today. Why does he heal? And maybe even more importantly, why doesn't he heal? Because the odds are you've experienced at least one of those two questions. I would imagine some of us have probably seen God heal. I know I have. I've seen him work in miraculous ways. But I've also seen times when I've asked God to heal myself, heal someone else that I care about a lot, and he doesn't come through. That becomes the bigger question for me. Why doesn't God heal? Again, if it was just an easy one plus one equals two kind of formula to this whole thing, we would set up phone lines where people are just sitting there praying all the time and they're like, oh, you have an illness. I would love to pray for you and heal you instantly. Hospitals would be put out of business completely. Uh, all of a sudden, everything would just be about faith healing. You'd call them up and they'd be like, hey, this is Janice from Faith Healing Hotline. How can I help you? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you have a brain freeze? Sure, sure. No problem. We got that. That's actually a quick and easy one. Put down the ice cream. I'll help you out, right? Right? 
and then boom, it would be over and done with. That would be the end. And so the reason that that doesn't happen is because sometimes we ask God to heal. Sometimes we actually believe that he can and will heal, but we don't actually see him come through. You've probably lived through this. Maybe you've asked the question of God, like, God, help my brother's kid who has this heart condition. God, help my friend who has cystic fibrosis. God, please rescue me from this terrible disease that I've been living with. We've all experienced that. And it would be dishonest, it would be disingenuous to sit up here and not recognize the fact that sometimes your friend that you prayed for dies. Sometimes your brother's kid doesn't get any better. Sometimes you go on living with this disease that you've been living with forever and it doesn't get any better. So here's what I want to do today. I'm not writing a thesis paper. I'm not going to cover every single thing about healing. I'm not going to try and address every single question that we have. I just want to throw out a few ideas that really popped in my mind from this passage as to why God might not heal. Why God might not heal. Number one, reason why God might not heal. You didn't ask. Now, this is the crazy one. Why are we reluctant to ask God for what we need or we want? I mean, you get a few no's or unanswered prayers, and then suddenly you throw the entire system out, right? It's kind of like playing the lottery. Like when you first hear about the lottery, you're like, well, there's a one in a million chance I could become a bajillionaire. I guess I'll give it a shot. And then you play it a few times and you're like, well, no, it seems unlikely, right? And something about us as humans, we're making rational choices. I'm not trying to say that these are unrational choices, but all of a sudden you get a few no's, you get a few, you know, you try and like get God to manifest some miracle right next to you and he doesn't do it. And you're like, I don't know if I can put my trust in this. But what's weird about this is that the input is so low and the potential outcome is so high. Why are we not trusting this a little bit more? Like, why don't we go to Jesus when we have these problems? Why don't we go to Jesus when we need healing or want it for someone else? Especially when the person that we might be asking for this healing said this in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? We should be asking, but it's hard because we are fickle and easily distractible people. I don't know if this is true for you or not, but the people that I have met with the absolute best prayer lives are the ones that are suffering from a terminal disease or are in love with someone who is dying uh, from something very, very difficult. Those type of people tend to be the people that are actually turning to and relying on God. And more often than not, when I find myself in a place where life is good, life is easy, life is simple, all of a sudden my own prayer life starts falling apart. I pray for each and every one of us that our lives never become so comfortable that we forget our need for God. May we never suffer so little that we forsake our need of Him. May we never get to a place where we feel like telling God, hey, look, God, aren't you proud of me of how well I took care of myself? And instead, we live in a place 
where we are fully relying on him for every single thing that we possibly have. May it never be said of us that we have not because we ask not. Number two reason why God might not heal is that we ask selfishly. We ask selfishly. James says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is here at the early, like the birth of the church, James is writing this letter and he's letting people know that you could ask God for something and he not give it to you because your motives are incorrect in this. Now you may say to yourself like, well, uh, my motives are correct. I'm asking for somebody to be better. Isn't that something good? Isn't that something that God wants? Well, maybe, maybe. I mean, if your grandmother is 120 years old and you're like, I'm not going to be able to make it without her, it seems a little selfish to keep her hanging around in here for much longer, right? Like at 120, she's not comfortable. Let's be honest. I don't even know if people live to 120, but you know what I mean. There is a potential where you're just being selfish at some level too. And this is something that is difficult to reconcile our minds with because it is so painful. At some level though, uh, God's ultimate healing, God's ultimate like uh, reconciliation of ourselves to our bodies comes after death. In some ways, even asking God for healing can be a form of selfishness. There's also occasions, and I've seen this in my own life, where I ask God to heal me to make me better of something just so that I can pass through whatever difficulty he has me in as quickly as I possibly can. I just want to get from point A to point B and I just want to get through this. And you know why that's selfish? Because I'm missing out on whatever God is trying to teach me. If I try and shortcut what he is showing me through the difficulty, I'm going to miss out on the good thing that he is trying to give me. Maybe the good gift is some sort of knowledge or growth or change in me. The good gift is not him getting rid of whatever it is that I am facing. Now, God is a good father. He wants to give good gifts to his children when they ask of him. He desires for you to have joy and peace in your life. He wants you to be completely fulfilled, probably even more than you do. But he is a good father in that he knows more than you do what is good for you. He knows what would actually fulfill you. He knows what would draw you to him and what would send you away from him. What would make you more selfish and what would make you more reliant on him. Number three, and this is actually the hardest to follow, is that sometimes healing is just not a part of God's plan. This is the hardest one to grapple with. I mean, can you imagine if, like, in this story, the dad came to Jesus and was like, hey, can you heal my daughter? And Jesus was like, no, I'm sorry, it's not her time. Simply not in the cards today. And that would be a difficult pill to swallow. But in reality, that is, I think, the way that it happens sometimes. This is a hard truth. I mean, think about this. Like, we hear this story, and it's amazing, and it's letting us know that Jesus can heal. Do you know that just down the street or just in the town over where Jesus decided not to go, someone died? Like, when Jesus was here, sure, he was doing healings. He wasn't healing everyone all the time all over the place. That's just not how he works, right? This is one of those like hard and heavy truths that you just have to like sit with the reality of it that you are not in charge. Jesus is very simply holding more of the cards on a cosmic level than you and I could ever wrap our minds around. And if we had a God that we would just march up to and be like, hey, 
I believe, can you heal me? And he did it every single time. That would be much more of like a genie in a bottle than it would be an actual God of the universe. Like, is that actually a God that you want to follow? He is in charge and we are not. That's the problem with healers and televangelists and whatever. The moment that you start sniffing out that they are saying that with enough faith, God works for you, you have actually missed it. Makes me think of uh, soccer players, actually, which I can make this analogy because we're still close enough to the World Cup when people actually watch soccer. Uh, but uh, soccer players, they do this thing where, like, you know, you get subbed off at some point in the game if you're tired. Now, not every soccer player gets subbed off. Most of the team actually plays the full 90 minutes. Uh, but here's what happens. You've got these, like, rich guys, right? They're, like, millionaires. Uh, but they're also maybe 19, so that's kind of confusing, right? And they're out there, they're playing their hardest, you know, they're trying to look good for the camera, they're flopping every once in a while and stuff, they're just out there. They get paid to play a sport, by the way. You know that thing that you like doing for fun? They get paid to do it. And then this other guy, the coach, is over on the side, and he says, number 10, you got to come off. And they do this whole thing. They, they look over there and they go... And then they, like, march as slow as they possibly can over to the sidelines, right? They're, like, mad that they're getting taken off, which is just, it's too much, right? Like, this guy is the coach. He has one job. You have another. If you know anything about soccer, then, like, subs are 90% of what a game-time coach does, right? He's not out there calling plays. He's not making changes. Like, the subs are a big deal. And he says, hey, you've got to come off. And instead, the people react with, like, ah. This guy, again, he's making me do this whole thing. Oh, my gosh. I sometimes wonder, and um, stay with me for a moment, I sometimes wonder if when we don't get what we want from God, when we're not satisfied, when he doesn't heal the way that we want or when we want or how we want, if we kind of react in this exact same way. And he's sitting there as the coach. He has all the cards. He knows who's fresh. He knows who's not fresh. He knows what, how the game is going. God is actually sitting there with more cards than any of us can ever actually imagine. He has his whole universe, um, or universal plan unfolding around us. And we are frustrated because we don't get what we want. And I don't want to make light of this. Because what I just described is easy to say, that we don't get what we want. It's not just a part of God's plan. It doesn't happen. What it is in reality is facing things like death, facing things like chronic pain, facing things like losing a loved one. These are difficult and hard things. And I want to just say, as a caveat to this, this doesn't take away from the fact that God is in control and he is going to do what he wants to accomplish his plan. But at the end of the day, the beautiful thing about God is that he is the exact same God who is willing to be there with you in the hardship. He's not a genie in the bottle, God. He's something better than that. He's a God who loves you, who is willing to walk through heartache with you, who is willing to be alongside you. In fact, he came here on earth just so he could know what it is like to be you and experience the things that you have experienced. In fact, when his friend Lazarus dies, he doesn't just flip a switch and be like, hey, I'm God, let's just bring him back, though he does eventually. No, he goes through the full cycle of grieving over Lazarus, his friend. He feels that emotion alongside of us. He's the one that knows more of how we feel and cares more than we could ever imagine. 
So those are some reasons why God might not heal. Let's end with why does God heal? There's really only two reasons. One, because you believe that he could, and two, because he can. And there are numerous stories of healing in the Bible, uh, and uh, they kind of, you know, they're all over the place to some degree, uh, but especially with these stories of Jesus, there are some where Jesus heals someone and we don't know whether or not they believed in him. In fact, there are some occasions where uh, someone's like possessed by a demon or something and Jesus frees them from that and they didn't ask him for it. Uh, They didn't even say that, hey, we trust and believe in you. They may have even been opposed to Jesus at the time of his healing. There's other stories where he's like walking by and there's a blind guy and he's like, boom, healed. The guy, we don't even know, does he believe him, does he not? Even in this story today, we don't know about the young girl. We don't know if she believed him or not. All we know is that her dad actually believed. But all of that being said, most of the stories where Jesus heals... Most of the stories where he actually makes someone better, brings them back to life, it is because of faith. It is because they actually believe in him. The vast majority of the stories where Jesus healed people, it happens as a result and a response to their belief. He heals people when they believe. Second, he heals because only he can. You know, in spite of my uh, skepticism and cynicism, the nice thing that you see from this story is the power and authority that Jesus has even over death, right? We put so much faith and trust in doctors. Like if a doctor tells you to do something, you're generally gonna go and do it or at least try it. And even they don't have this type of control and authority, right? They can't promise anything. Doctors don't deal in guarantees, They're sort of like, well, if this works out, if this surgery works, then this will happen. If this treatment works, then this will happen. You know, if your body reacts the way that we want it to react, yada, yada, yada. And still, we are willing to trust them so much more than the one person who loves us and can snap his fingers and make anything better, can heal anyone, can bring anyone back from the dead. It's weird, the sort of imbalance of trust that we have there. Now, sure, I've said over and over again that Jesus doesn't heal because you just want him to, but it's good and refreshing to know that you're praying to someone who actually can, right? Like, maybe you might could make an argument that the likelihood could be low, but at least the potential is there. How ironic that we put so much more of our faith in the things that we feel like we can control, even though the potential is low, potential might actually be nothing. Here he shows himself master over even death. This being just a foretaste of when he would bring himself back to life. It was just a physical version, too, of what he does to our souls. He breathes life into them. He takes the dead and brings them back to life. He breathes life into us when all seems lost. Here's 
Here's how I want to end, uh, because I think in talking through this, in some ways, this feels even more believable for me. It's sort of setting some like clear parameters of like, hey, uh, you know, I'm not trying to even delude myself. I'm not trying to be like a charlatan or anything out here tricking myself. In some ways, believing that Jesus can, believing that he responds to our belief, and believing that there are also good and right reasons why he might not heal makes it more believable for me. I'm sorry that I had to force the rest of you through that. But to solidify and drive it home, here's what I want to do. Because Matthew and many of the authors of, this, of, Bi- of the Bible uh, believe in stories. They believe in the power that that has to uh, sort of guide our thinking and change our hearts and minds. And so now, putting away all of the cynicism, putting away many of our reservations about what healing is, I want us to actually read this story again. And I want you to put yourself into one of the categories as we're thinking through this. You can pick any of the categories except the dead girl or Jesus. Uh, So basically, it comes down to either the dad or the woman. Maybe you could be in the crowd. I don't know. Choose one of those, though, is what I would suggest. And I want you just to, like, use your sort of biblical imagination here to put yourself into this story and see if God will change you and change your thinking, change your heart, change your soul as a result of it. The dad is a ruler, a man of power and authority, a man who says things and other people do it. Mark's telling of this story shows us that he is the ruler of the synagogue. He's a ruler in the synagogue. That makes him one of the religious elite. And he was a dad like any other. He helped bring this girl into the world. She became his everything. He watched her take her first steps, watched her learn to talk, watched her growing, becoming the person she was going to be, and then she gets sick. We have no idea what her sickness was. Could have started as a simple cold that doesn't go away and gets worse and worse and worse. Tries everything. He brings in healers. He brings in wise men. Brings in whatever the equivalent of a doctor was back then. And then even though most of the other rulers and leaders in the synagogue were opposed to this guy named Jesus because he was sort of attacking everything they stood for, this guy gets so desperate that he starts looking into who is this Jesus guy and eventually comes to a place where he believes in him enough to march up him in the street and beg him to come and even though they were mid-funeral service and everyone thought he was crazy Jesus marches up to her room alone and comes back downstairs leading his daughter by the hand all because He believed enough to go to him. Or maybe you want to put yourself in the shoes of the woman who suffered with an illness for 12 years. She probably had some sort of bleeding that instead of coming once a month came all the time. Not only was it a sign that something was wrong and unhealthy with her, but it also made her unclean in the eyes of the law. She was probably ostracized from society. She, in fact, wasn't even really technically allowed to touch people. She shouldn't have even been in a crowd like this. She was scared. She was alone. And she was sick. And for 12 years, no one could do anything about it. 
until she hears about this Jesus. And I want you really to put yourself in her shoes right now. Like, how much did she think of herself that she thought that Jesus wasn't even worth stopping for her? She thought, oh, I won't bother him. I'll just touch his robe as he passes by, and then I will be healed. But you can see from Jesus' response that it wasn't a bother to him. He is joyful. He's encouraged by her faith, and so he heals her. Let's read it one more time as I close and place yourselves in their shoes. Verse 18 says, While he was saying these things to him, or to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.